0: Whatever your passion, God can use it to reach others with the gospel. For example, in a few minutes, you'll meet a guy who loves to climb. Hills, mountains, walls. If it can be climbed, he wants to give it a try. What's more, he believes he can combine his love of climbing with his passion to reach Jewish people for Christ. Join us now for The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is a lifelong student of the Middle East, travels there often. I'm John Geiger, and it's great to connect with you today. Well, Charlie, it's that time of year again, the biblical fall feasts, the holy days upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plans for the future, and why they matter for us as believers.
1: You're right, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. To sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and
0: our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. And now a look at current events from the Middle East. Arguments began this week before Israel's high court on the legality of the reasonableness law passed by the Knesset. When might a decision be reached, and what impact could it have on the country?
1: Yeah, an unprecedented full 15-judge panel spent 13 hours this past Tuesday listening to arguments for and against striking down the reasonableness law passed by the Knesset as a basic law. Now, a basic law becomes part of Israel's version of their constitution, so one issue focused on whether the court even has the authority to strike down a basic law. Those asking for the law to be overturned say the legislative process was rushed and flawed and that the law itself is a quote unconstitutional amendment. The government is arguing the basic laws in contrast with other laws are Israel's quasi-constitution and while the courts have authority to rule on regular laws they don't have the authority to annul Israel's basic laws. Uh, The court seemed to suggest they do have that authority however but they also expressed reluctance to do so unless a basic law does irreparable harm to democracy and they seemed less convinced that that was the case in this particular instance now it'll likely be several weeks or longer until a ruling is handed down and while it's possible they could strike down the law or leave it in place as it is it's also possible they'll try to finesse their way through some sort of compromise Uh, they could assert their right to review the law but then choose to hold off making an actual decision until they can evaluate the impact the law is having in its actual outworking. Now, a compromise decision like that well, it might give the prime minister and the opposition more time to try to craft a compromise. What we need to hope is that the 15 judges are able to come up with a response that demonstrates the wisdom of Solomon.
0: Story number two, how close might a normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia be? Is an agreement imminent, or is this a case where there's more hype and hope than actual hard evidence that a deal is about to be announced?
1: Uh, To hear the commentators and political pundits, it sounds like a, a deal finalizing a peace agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia could take place as early as this month. And in many ways, that's what everyone, from President Biden to Prime Minister Netanyahu, might want. But it'll take a great deal of work to craft a deal, and there's some hard bargaining ahead. The U.S. is pushing hard to bridge the differences. High-level phone conversations and meetings have been underway. Delegates have been traveling from Washington to the different capitals. And the recently announced India-Saudi Arabia-EU trade corridor could help connect Israel and Saudi Arabia within this larger transportation deal. Now, in terms of an actual peace treaty, The U.S. wants to finalize a deal prior to the next presidential election, and likely sooner rather than later. While the broad details of a possible agreement have been floated, there's still a number of potential minefields. Can Netanyahu agree to Palestinian demands for additional concessions without having his coalition fall apart? Can he work through these details while also facing Israel's current political chaos and crisis? Can Saudi Arabia push the Palestinians into accepting less than they've always demanded? And will the Saudis trust any U.S. defense commitments in light of Iranian threats in the Gulf? It's hard to imagine how all these details can be hammered out in a matter of weeks or even in a matter of a few months. Right. You can never say never when it comes to the Middle East, John, but right now it doesn't look like an agreement is
0: imminent. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, working us through a A look at current events from the Middle East. I'm John Geiger. Story number three, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas recently claimed that Ashkenazi Jews had no ties to the land of Israel, weren't even really Jewish, and were only killed by Hitler because they were moneylenders. When did Abbas actually make these claims, and what has been the reaction? Yeah, Abbas made those claims in a recent
1: speech at a meeting of the Fatah Party's Revolutionary Council on August 24. Now, the furor arose when the speech was translated from Arabic into English and published by a U.S.-based group. Uh, The ideas expressed by Abbas have been presented before by others, including him, wanting to discredit Jewish claims to the land. Abbas said, in effect, that Ashkenazi Jews or European Jews were not Jewish at all, but were descendants of a Turkish-linked tribe known as the Khazars uh, who had converted to Judaism. He also claimed that Hitler didn't kill the 6.5 million Jews in the Holocaust for being Jewish, but because of their social role as moneylenders, even though the vast majority of them weren't moneylenders. Uh, He also claimed that it was the British and the Americans who invented the Jewish state and the Balfour Declaration during World War I. He said he made this clear so that the Palestinians would know who to accuse of being their enemy and taking away their homeland. The reaction from the West has been horror and condemnation, and rightly so. The mayor of Paris stripped Abbas of the French capital's highest honor that had previously been awarded to him, saying his remarks were contrary to the universal values and historical truth of the Holocaust. Uh, the U.S. envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism said she was appalled by Abbas's hateful anti-Semitic remarks. The EU put out a statement denouncing the remarks and calling them false and grossly misleading, as well as inflammatory and deeply offensive. And let me add one other quick note here. The Ashkenazi Jews are linked genetically to the Jews from the Middle East, both Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews. They're all Jewish and they do have a biblical claim to the land promised by God to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abbas was voicing the opinion of many Palestinians, and sadly, that refusal to recognize the Jewish connection to the land of Israel is one key reason why, 30 years on, the Oslo Accords have failed.
0: Story number four, archeologists are baffled by a discovery of a production facility dating back to the time of the biblical kings. What exactly did they uncover and why is it so baffling? I'm wondering what they produced. Yeah, and that's the real question
1: to this whole thing. They discovered two areas. They're about 30 feet apart. They're at the northeastern end of the Givati parking lot in Jerusalem. And people are going, what? Well, for those who've been to Israel, this is the area just outside the Dung Gate and just west of the original city of David where they're doing that giant excavation. What they found were a series of rock cut channels. At one of the two sites, they found even drain pipes that evidently carried liquid from the top of the cliff to the channels. The problem is they've never seen anything like this before. It's never been uncovered before, so they're trying to figure out what those channels were used for. The location suggests that they might be connected in some way to the royal palace, which would have been just to the east, or possibly to the temple, just to the north. They were able to date when the facilities went out of use, which was sometime at the end of the 9th century BC, uh, during the reigns of Joash or Amaziah, two of the lesser-known kings of Judah. Now, the channels don't lead to a drainage basin, so they were likely used to soak something rather than to drain a liquid. And based on comparisons to some installations in Oman, Bahrain, and Iran, their best guess right now is the facility was used either to soak flax to soften it or to hold dates to be heated by the sun to produce date honey. Now archaeology is like putting together a puzzle and sometimes after discovering a puzzle piece the archeologist is still left wondering how it fits into the overall puzzle. So hopefully some answers will come in time.
0: You think there will be further information and that they might be able to offer a bit more detail?
1: I think they will. Again, they're still continuing the excavate there so they're hoping to find maybe something else that adds another piece to the puzzle. They've uh, find some parts that help date Uh, But really what they're looking for is a comparative structure. Somewhere else in the Middle East, there had to be something similar that they would now know what it was used for.
0: Story number five. My wife is really big on this one. Four 1,900-year-old swords were recently discovered in the Judean desert near En Gedi. How significant is this archaeological find?
1: Well, the find's been called a -a once-in-a-lifetime discovery. They actually found four Roman swords and the head of a javelin. They were stuffed into a crevice inside a rather inaccessible cave near Engedi. The weapons were likely hidden by Jewish rebels during the Bar Kokhva revolt about a 100 years after the time of Christ. The weapons are in remarkable state of preservation with the steel blades still in their sheaths and the handles still intact. They were accidentally discovered by a team that went to the cave to take images of a Hebrew inscription. It was found on a stalactite there. over 800 caves are still being surveyed along the Dead Sea as part of a multi-year study. Uh, This is a reminder that there are likely other treasures and
0: artifacts in that region still waiting to be uncovered. Wow, what a cool find that is. A great look at current events today with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We'll look forward to hanging out with you more, Charlie, as the program unfolds. Up next, though, whatever your passion, God can use it to reach others with the gospel. You're about to meet a guy who loves to climb hills, mountains, and walls. He's going to export that interest of his in a ministry in Israel. You don't want to miss this conversation coming up next on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Whatever your passion, God can use it to reach others with the gospel. For example, You're about to meet a guy who loves to climb. Hills, mountains, walls. If it can be climbed, he absolutely wants to give it a try. What's more, today's guest believes he can combine his love of climbing with his passion to reach Jewish people for Christ. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we start today's Big Climb, I want you to think with me creatively about ways every one of us can build a bridge toward a Jewish friend or neighbor. Here's what I'm talking about. So you think about trying to share your faith with a Jewish friend, and and you realize that Christianity and Islam are often viewed as monotheistic religions, which grew out of Judaism. What do we say when a Jewish friend says, I prefer to stick with the original, thank you very much? (laughs) Sure. We'll happily affirm that sticking with God's revealed truth is great practice. God has revealed himself through the Old Testament, which he gave to the world through the Jewish people, his chosen nation. The Tanakh, the Old Testament, tells us God is holy, we are sinful, and there are many examples of both individual and national sin in the Old Testament. God made provision to cover sin through the Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system, and God promised Israel a new covenant. That's West Tabor, by the way, with life and Messiah. So, Jeremiah 31, then, would be a good passage of Scripture to share with our Jewish friend, yes? Yes. Verse 3 affirms the enduring nature of God's love for the Jewish people. And Beginning in verse 31, God promised to give Israel and Judah a new covenant, which would not be like the old covenant, which Israel could not keep. Yeshua, Messiah Jesus, instituted the new covenant through his sacrificial death and resurrection, and it is a better covenant, according to Hebrews 8. West Tabor with Life and Messiah, joining us today on The Land and the Book. Josue Zuko, or Geo, grew up with a knowledge of God, but no true relationship with God. After his grandmother died, he was swept into a gang life of alcohol, drugs, and immorality. And how that all changed is quite a story. But bigger than that is the story of God's call on his life to reach Jewish people with the gospel. Hey, welcome to the land of the book, Zio. Thank you. What was the the lowest point you remember in your life before Christ? You're, You're in a gang. You're doing drugs. You use the words immoral lifestyle. At what point did you say, man, this might not be so cool?
2: I was actually when a lot of that started to slow down and I was working here in Chicago, not not to actually right across the street as well, building some buildings over here and didn't need the money, but I was still kind of, uh, I guess, loaning myself out for more money to the female population, I guess, as best as I could say that. And I had had a few friends actually around here that died on job sites. And just thinking as I was coming back from a weekend, of where my life has gone and how far low that um, in order to find any kind of satisfaction in life i have to kind of put myself out there to be bought and it just came to be too much for me and i was on the plane and um just kind of gave my life to the lord there and just knowing that if i went to work the next day that I could die like my friends as well.
0: That's that's quite a jump, though, to go from the low to the high, spiritually, as it were. You know, it's one thing to realize that the path you're on ain't so great, quite another to find yourself confessing Jesus as your Messiah. Is there more to that journey, or it just went that
2: quick? Um. Oh, there, there's a, a lot more, about uh, almost 18, 19 years of um, ebbs and flows, but mainly just a descending spiral staircase towards that low point. So it's very involved in... You know, it could take quite a long time to actually explain.
0: Now, when you met Jesus after that, do you feel like you made a, a pretty clean break with that old lifestyle, or or, or were there some hang-on kind of things?
2: Uh, no, it took about a year and a half, uh, about a year catechesis period to understand what an actual relationship with the Lord looks like, and then about another six to eight months after that um, of being discipled by my spiritual father to actually have that true relationship.
0: One of the chapters in your amazing story includes an education at Moody Bible Institute. What was your study focus, and how did that time shape your vision for future ministry?
2: Well, I started out with uh, biblical studies, which is what uh, my spiritual father had recommended. But then as within the first semester, um getting involved with uh, people like Dr. Wexler, um, who got me to going to Olive Tree Congregation and getting me really involved in Jewish ministry. And after about three semesters, then Dr. Idelna came in and was telling me that you can learn a lot more with, uh, about the Bible doing Jewish studies than you actually can biblical studies. And that was where I uh, decided to take my focus was with Jewish studies and biblical languages.
0: Today in The Land and the Book, an unusual conversation with an unusual guest. He is Gio Zuko with Life in Messiah. Up front, we mentioned your passion for climbing. Where did that come from and how much climbing have you done?
2: Uh, My passion, um, that kind of started when I was living, um, doing a lot of gang life and just traveling throughout the States and I would just see a rock and just start climbing. So no no rope, uh, what's called free soloing. Don't recommend that for anybody, but (laughs) uh, very dangerous. But um, when I kind of started to get the notion I was going to head down to Argentina to do backpacking ministry and do a lot of climbing, that's when I really started to hit the gym and uh, really developed a passion. And then it really took off being in Argentina and being able to be trained by one of the best.
0: All right. What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? I mean, you've already taken us there.
2: There was a mountain or um, a cliff in Allegheny State Park. And I was about a good 20 to 30 meters up and caught a piece of moss and slipped and was holding on by one hand and had nothing. And it was only by the Lord that I did not fall to my death. But yeah, that was probably the sketchiest thing I've ever done.
0: (laughs) Well, eventually you linked up with an organization known as Life in Messiah, great partners of this program. And in that partnership, you have a vision for moving to Israel. And along those lines, you've set up some great ministry goals over a three- to five-year period. The first of those goals is to become fluent in the modern Hebrew language. How difficult do you think this is going to be for you?
2: Uh, It shouldn't be too difficult. Uh, God's kind of gifted me with languages. Um, I already know biblical Hebrew fairly well. So I was actually able to transition a lot of the biblical Hebrew to modern while I was down in Argentina. And being able to use that uh, with the Israeli backpackers that came through— And just kind of picked it up fairly quickly, and I'll start upon when I get to Israel in January.
0: This uh, passion for going to Israel, did that happen primarily as you were down in Argentina, working with Jewish people there?
2: Um, That started, I would say, when I uh, was going through Jewish religious thought with Dr. Idelnik and really starting to get into, um, like, Second Temple period, understanding rabbinic theology, and that was what really kind of uh, started a lot of the passion for wanting to be in the land. And uh, then the Lord just kept adding more and more pieces as uh, time went on. Hmm. Gio Zuko
0: is headed for Israel with a full heart and a big dream. The journey he's been on is our focus today on the land and the book. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for being a part of our program. Establishing a Jewish outreach ministry in Chicago is another of your goals. What do you envision more specifically?
2: Uh, Right now, I'm doing a lot of climbing ministry, so I'll go to the local climbing gyms and just hang out, talk to people, uh, establish relationships, uh, share the good news with them. And then as I continue to build these relationships, then I invite them back for a Shabbat meal that I do uh, twice a month. And then from there, just give like a brief teaching that brings climbing terms into the gospel message and being able to share with them uh, my passion for the Jewish people and understanding the Jewish roots of what could be and, God willing, will be uh, their potential faith and relationship.
0: At the same time, you're doing a postgraduate work. What's your focus here?
2: Uh, postgraduate work will be at Bar Ilan in Israel, and that is where I will study Second Temple Period Judaism, either post-exilic books with post-exilic prophecy or Matthean scholarship is where I really want to focus
0: So I noticed uh, you've got some tattoos on your arms, and I'm thinking that as you try to reach out to folks at climbing walls and gyms, those are probably helpful to you in building bridges in many cases. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Yes. Yes. uh, When you have almost a full body suit, people do come out of the woodwork (laughs) just to kind of notice a lot of the tattoos, and it helps strike up conversations as well. Yeah.
0: He likes to climb just about anything, and he's hoping to turn that passion into an outreach as he heads over to Israel. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. Our guest is Gio Zuko with Life in Messiah. Well, this next goal blows me away. You say you want to acquire land in Israel and obtain supplies to build a mashab, which is essentially an Israeli town or settlement, a cooperative agricultural community. How does that connect with your passion to share Jesus?
2: That is going to be a uh, very multifaceted, require a lot of moving pieces, but I mean, nothing's outside the realm of of what the Lord can do. So dream big. And it's going to require people who know um, horticulture being able to help with the agrarian aspect. Uh, My goal also to go along with that is to have uh, deal with the European insurance companies who send people to the Dead Sea for skin treatments. So if I'm looking south of Jericho, and if I can have the land and the people, then we can kind of use climbing, um, like spa treatments, agrarian lifestyle, just use it all and just have it all based around Messiah Yeshua and being able to Anybody who comes in is going to hear the gospel, going to receive a Bible in some way, shape, or form, and being able to share the Word that way.
0: I love that dream. I love it. And I love the fact that you're dreaming big. Mm -hmm. Don't let anybody shrink that dream on you. So uh, you've hinted at a construction background. I'm assuming that could be pretty helpful as you launch into this thing.
2: Yes. I've actually been in contact with a few people that are fellow ironworkers as well that are interested in coming out and helping me. So they're not believers, but it could be a good way to get them into the land and to kind of really share the gospel even more and maybe even have that be the culminating point in their lives. Hmm. How could you encourage the
0: listener who wonders if God could use their passion, their hobby for outreach? Here you are, a climber. Uh, you are uh, you know, a builder, and God seems to be using those in your life. What about our listeners?
2: Using your passions, I mean, that's uh, something that is very— um, Just finding whatever that you love to do and just getting creative with it. I mean, that's the biggest thing is just being creative. Don't let anybody, like as you said, don't let anybody shirk your dreams. Don't let anybody shrink them. Just dream big. And if uh, God wants it to be, then he'll be in it. But the biggest thing is to uh, be flexible. You know, as we always say, blessed are the flexible uh, for those who won't be bent out of shape. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's all you can do is fill things in with pencil and let God uh, fill it in with pen.
0: One of the things I love about Gio is he's not waiting for then, that is, then when he's in Israel. He's reaching out now. He's a missionary now. And uh, maybe you could share with us a couple of insights, lessons that you have learned that maybe we could kind of steal from you as we think about reaching out to the Jewish people that God has placed in our paths. What kind of things are you
2: learning? Well, one thing I've really noticed that I learned in Argentina, but just like a simple shalom, like if you're hearing somebody speaking Hebrew, yes, um, I had a conversation last week with three Israelis that were in Chicago and I was, happened to be at the cafe and just a simple shalom or just slicha uh, and just, you know, excuse me, and starting up conversation that way and just getting their attention uh, is one thing that I learned. And also uh, another thing I would say would uh, just not going so heavy. Uh, I can be very intense. So learning not to be so intense with people, but just kind of uh, having that um, loving aspect. I know that we may not get a lot of time to share the word with people, but just, you know, coming in light and then just kind of progressing slowly, I would say, was, uh something that I've noticed not to really hit them so hard with the gospel right off the bat, because, mm. you know, that's uh, kind of skittish for the Jewish people, I've noticed. Yeah.
0: What do you think wins for you in a conversation? What's working for you to turn the corner beyond a greeting, beyond a how you're doing, to move the needle a bit spiritually? What's been successful?
2: Um, It's something I've actually always had, and it's just finding that key moment to really just kind of turn. So you could just be having a simple conversation, wait for them to say something, and and then right when they say that thing, that you can really turn into something spiritual and then you can really just switch and uh, change the gears on the conversation that way. And that's something that I've uh, always done, not in a good way, but now it's something that the Lord is using to kind of gear in a more God driven way.
0: How can we pray for you, Gio?
2: Um, Right now, the uh, partnership development is uh, the biggest aspect as I prepare to go to Israel Um, boldness uh, and strength as I continue to get out there and be able to share the community that i'm in is very orthodox and reformed so it's and very gender fluid so there's a lot of mistaken identity and being able to have that boldness to share the truth in love is uh going to be a big thing well we look forward to
0: someday sitting down with you in israel doing an interview seeing what god has done and what he's continuing to do in your life Uh, there's a bright future ahead you are an awesome guy to hang out with thanks for being with us today thank you sir Coming up on The Land of the Book, it's Charlie Dyer's answers to questions that have come in via email. I'm looking forward to it. Are you? It's right here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. Well, it's that time of year again. The biblical fall feasts, the holy days are upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plan for the future, and why they matter for us as believers. And that's why
1: our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles you'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. To sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Now be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at
0: lifeinmessiah.org. If you're just joining us, this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, is our host. I'm John Geiger, always glad to be hanging out with you. And in this second segment, we open up our email inbox and take a look at the questions that are puzzling you as you open the Word. We'll start with Laurels. She says, My husband and I have been reading through the book of Leviticus and wonder if they had scrolls back in their day so that Moses could write down the many, many details of the instructions that God gave for the various sacrifices. Who could remember all of that without taking notes?
1: Well, you know, they did have pretty good memories back then. But having said that, while we don't have any actual physical remains of documents from the time of Moses, it seems very likely that both parchment from animal skins and papyrus, plant-based paper, were available in some form during the Egyptian empire. And growing up in the house of Pharaoh, Moses would have been familiar with writing and with those materials, and likely he wrote the books of the Pentateuch on parchment. Now, we are told several times in the Pentateuch that Moses wrote down the laws and commands. For example, Exodus 24.4 says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Uh, and then later in Deuteronomy 31.9, it says, So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests. And then just a few verses later, it says, So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. Now, from these and other passages, I believe we can assume that Moses did at times stop and write physically what God had commanded, and he also recorded the other historical materials in his books. He then entrusted the completed documents to the priests, whose job it was to study and teach that content to the people.
0: Eric says, in a Bible study, our leader mentioned a relatively new translation of the Bible called the Evangelical Heritage Version. What is your evaluation of the EHV translation?
1: Yeah, I love these kind of questions because it gets me looking for things. I'd not had an opportunity to look at this translation before, so I couldn't speak to its overall quality or accuracy. So I did some checking. uh, In looking at their online materials, I discovered that though it's not an official translation of the Lutheran Church, It was produced by an association of Lutheran professors, pastors, and teachers, and their goal was to try to steer a middle ground between a dynamic translation and a more literal translation. I looked up some sample verses like John 3, 16, and it seems the translation is very similar to other modern ones. In passages with prophetic themes, like the final verses in Romans 11, I did sense their theology might be influencing the translation, but the translation was still reasonably accurate and passages like 2 Timothy 3.16 with Paul's emphasis on Scripture being God-breathed was done well. Now, at the end of the day, I'm not sure the translation will replace what is already a crowded field of other good translations, but it is one that could be used alongside others by someone wanting to compare how different translators understand the Bible.
0: It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, Questions and Answers. That's our format this segment. Paul says, I've been thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel 3, when the three Hebrew children refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar and were thrown in the furnace, where was Daniel during all of this?
1: Uh, Well, we're not told directly where Daniel was during the events in Daniel 3, but I do see some hints at the end of chapter 2 that I think can help explain why he wasn't there. After interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream there in chapter 2, verse 48 says then, the king promoted Daniel and made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. Daniel then made a request of Nebuchadnezzar, who it says then appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So Daniel lived in the city of Babylon while the three friends were out in the province as administrators. Now, in another historical detail, not in the Bible, but found in the Babylonian Chronicle provides a summary of major events every year that took place in Babylon and in Nebuchadnezzar's tenth year there was an attempted coup. For two months it says there was a rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar put his large army to the sword and conquered his foe. Now within the city, Nebuchadnezzar knew who was for him, like Daniel, and who was against him, but that coup attempt raised his concern about the loyalty of other officials and nobles outside the city. A fellow named William Shea wrote a great article, Sounds Terrible, Daniel 3, in the Convocation on the Plain of Dura. (laughs) <laughs> but he ties together all of these details, including some uh, historical materials found in uh, excavations, and says apparently Nebuchadnezzar summoned all his officials and rulers outside the city of Babylon to gather to reaffirm their loyalty to him. Now, Daniel in the inner circle may not have had to attend. Somebody has to run the government while this is happening, and Daniel had already demonstrated his loyalty, but everyone else, including Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and according to these details he found, even the king of Judah, had to go to Babylon and affirm their loyalty. And you can see why Nebuchadnezzar would get so angry when three men wouldn't bow down. Uh, Anyway, I think a coup attempt helps explain why those outside the royal court in Babylon would have been summoned to this gathering and also at least helps explain why
0: Daniel may not have had to be there. Cynthia says, I was reading 2 Kings 17 regarding Assyria sending the people of Samaria into exile and repopulating the city with people from other nations. My question is, did some Israelites remain in Samaria and intermarry with the peoples from the other nations? I ask because the Samaritans of Jesus' time were considered at least partly of Jewish descent. Yeah, you know,
1: Second Kings 17 doesn't say directly, but I think from the larger context, we assume that not every single inhabitant of Israel was deported by the king of Assyria. Likely he deported the leadership, the strongest, those who could benefit the Assyrians as workers, but he left the poor, the weak, and others in the land to continue working it to provide income from the land for the Assyrian Empire. He then brought into Samaria from Assyria others who could help keep the remaining population from ever rebelling again. Now I can make that assumption I think for two reasons. First, something similar was done later by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It says he deported the key artisans and craftsmen during his attack on Jerusalem, but after the final destruction, He deported the rest of the people, it says, except for the poorest of the land, who were left to be vine dressers and plowmen. But second, it seems the individuals who remained in the land, those later called Samaritans, were indeed a mixture or intermarriage of Israelites and those who were brought into the land, who were taught then a corrupted form of Judaism. Uh, In John 4, the woman at the well, uh, when she pointed to the, uh, uh, our fathers built a temple there on Mount Gerizim. Well, even today, there are descendants of the Samaritans living on Mount Gerizim, who have their own version of the Pentateuch and who believe the place selected by God for his temple was Mount Gerizim and not Mount Moriah.
0: Questions from the Bible, your questions. That's the focus of this segment on the land and the book. Eleanor says, can you please explain in Philippians 2 verse 17 what a drink offering or libation represented to Paul? What was its purpose since it was never used alone, but in conjunction with another offering?
1: Yeah, it is true. Drink offerings were used in connection with a main offering, and I think that actually helps us understand the imagery Paul's using. Uh, The question is, what Paul saw as that main sacrifice, if he's picturing himself as a drink offering. Well, in the book, I think it could very well be the sacrificial gift made by the church in Philippi on his behalf. Uh, In chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes, I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, in light of that, Paul then pictures himself as the drink offering accompanying their sacrificial service gift on his behalf. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from you. So the drink offering represents Paul's life and possible martyrdom, which he then uses as a figure of speech to connect his service for
0: them with their service for him. From Alan, this question, I'm curious about the cities of refuge. In Numbers 35 and Joshua 20 and 21, God sets aside six cities where a person who accidentally killed someone could be given a hearing at the gate and be protected from Avengers. One of those cities was Hebron. In 2 Samuel 3, verse 27, Joab took Abner outside of the gates of Hebron and killed him for the earlier death of Ashiel, Joab's brother was this an example of god's laws on the cities of refuge actually it's not in
1: fact i see Joab's killing of abner as an example of a miscarriage of justice even though abner had killed joab's brother it was during a military skirmish and even then abner tried to talk that brother into breaking off his pursuit in contrast joab tricked abner into returning to hebron and when he returned he took him aside to the gate as though to speak to him privately probably he wanted to get outside the town because david's in the town and then they took him out there and assassinated him. Uh, David himself apparently feared Joab and his bloodthirsty ways. In fact, uh, later he says he's afraid of Joab, and then David's final words to Solomon. He reminds Solomon what Joab had done in shedding blood in peacetime as if in battle, and encouraged Solomon to deal with him according to your wisdom all that suggests to me there's no connection between God's instructions for the cities of refuge and what Joab actually did there in the gate of Hebron.
0: Lots of great questions. Thanks for sharing yours. Up next on The Land and the Book, Charlie's Devotional. Stick around for more. many non-Jewish believers are somewhat disconnected from the Jewish holidays. And that's not a good idea because in them, we see so much of Christ, so much of scripture, so much of the call on our lives lived out in an interesting way. Coming up here on The Land and the Book, Charlie Dyer, you're taking us to Numbers 29 for a look at Rosh Hashanah, but it's someplace other than Israel that we're going to head to? That's right, John. We're heading out of the country of Israel to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Okay, going to look forward to that. First, though, let's pause and take in this Holy Land experience.
3: Well, I'm Ruth Ann Winkleman from Canton, Ohio, and I'm 84 years old, and I have enjoyed this trip so much. And knowing that I really wasn't capable of doing everything they asked, but they make it so easy for you. And they're so helpful along the way. Uh, I especially want to comment on uh, one thing. One thing that we did today was um, the journey that Ruth and Naomi uh, took. I just don't see how they ever did it, but it was over land that is so rugged that you just can't imagine. And of course, another highlight for me was swimming in, in the, uh, the Dead Sea, and it's, uh, it's a real experience. But I think the, the best part about this whole trip is knowing the Bible better. Uh, no matter what, they make it come to life.
0: Rosh Hoshana, there are probably a lot of listeners saying, exactly what is that again, and how does it apply to me? Charlie, we'll turn things over to you.
1: Uh, Thanks, John. Yeah, this weekend is Rosh Hashanah, the start of the Jewish New Year, and to get into that spirit, we're driving from Jerusalem, past Jericho, and across the Jordan River at the Allenby Bridge into modern Jordan. Now, be sure to slather on your suntan lotion because it'll be sunny and hot when we get off the bus. Back home, the weather's starting to transition from summer to fall, but down here in the lower Jordan Valley, it's still blazing hot. So, why have we traveled to Jordan to focus on a Jewish holiday. Well, that's the first of several confusing issues I want to focus on during our time together. We're here because one of the places where God provided details about this holiday happened while Israel was camped right here in the plains of Moab shortly before entering the Promised Land. God had provided details about this day before, but he then repeated them in Numbers 29, right where you're now standing. The second confusing issue about this day is its purpose. Ask any Jewish friend what the name and purpose of this festival is, and he or she will likely tell you that it's Rosh Hashanah, and it marks the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah literally means Head of the Year, the name suggesting that it is indeed the beginning of the New Year. But there are two problems. First, the day is never called Rosh Hashanah in the Bible. In Numbers 29.1, it's called a Day for Blowing Trumpets and rather than being the first day of the new year that same verse says it takes place in the seventh month on the first day of the month now this bit of confusion can be sorted out by understanding the historical development of the day and that starts by realizing that israel actually had two new years a civil new year and a religious one the religious calendar began in the spring in the month later called nissan in exodus 12:2, as part of his instructions for instituting passover God said to Moses, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. But later, Israel also developed a civil calendar that corresponded to the end of the harvest season and the beginning of the fall rainy season. And though initially it was the seventh month in the religious calendar, it eventually became the first month of this alternate calendar. And the first important gathering in this new month was the very first day of the month, which is why the gathering became known as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the new year. But that doesn't explain why the day was initially called a day for blowing trumpets. Now, that came about because God had given Israel a command to sound a trumpet on that day. In Leviticus 23:24, God referred to it as Zikron Teruah, literally a memorial blast. But why single out this one day to focus on the sounding of the trumpet? After all in Numbers 10 10 God said Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts, and new moon festivals, you're to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. They will be a memorial for you before God. Trumpets were to sound for the daily burnt offerings and at the beginning of each new moon. But if that was the general pattern, then the first day of the seventh month featured trumpet blasts on steroids. Not only was it an appointed feast and a new moon, but it featured multiple burnt and fellowship offerings three sets of offerings were to be offered that day. The regular daily sacrifices, the new moon sacrifices, and special sacrifices for the feast day itself. This involved a total of three bulls, two rams, 16 male lambs, along with more than a bushel and a half of fine flour, and six gallons each of oil and wine. And the trumpets were to sound over each of these offerings. No wonder it became known as the Feast of Trumpets. Confused yet? It's known as Rosh Hashanah, the start of the new year, though it was to take place in the seventh month. And it's the Feast of Trumpets, though it's never actually called that in the Bible. Instead, it was the day for blowing trumpets or the day of the memorial blast. In fact, it never actually says the blast was to be done by blowing on a shofar. Neither Leviticus 23 nor Numbers 29 use the Hebrew word shofar. That's assumed, but never actually stated. And there are some who believe the silver trumpets prepared by Moses' could have been the ones that were used. Now, the sun's intense here by the Jordan River, and I can see you're starting to become more interested in finding a kiosk where you can buy something cold to drink than you are in getting more confused about Rosh Hashanah. So as one friend of mine would say, okay, it's now time to land the plane. Let me try to bring order out of this confusion and then tell you why this is significant for your life today. Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, is important because God instituted it as part of his annual Holy Convocation for Israel and it's the first of the fall festivals prophetically the spring festivals pointed toward Christ's first coming while the fall festivals point toward his second coming this festival is significant because I believe it points to the next event on God's prophetic calendar for his people Israel technically this begins the so-called days of awe for Israel the time when God will again resume his program for his chosen nation in a unique and special way. It kicks off the sequence of events that will end with the return of Israel's Messiah to the Mount of Olives to assume his role as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just as the last of the spring feasts related to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit while also signaling the birth of the church, so the Feast of Trumpets will signal the resumption of God's work for Israel while also removing the church from earth. As one program draws to a close, the other resumes. I don't believe it's an accident that Paul described the dramatic ending of God's program for his church by comparing it to the sounding of a trumpet. In 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17, he wrote, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one and 52, he added, Listen, I tell you a mystery we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed Now, i need to add quickly this doesn't mean the rapture has to take place on rosh hashanah but i do believe this feast points toward christ in gathering of his church to heaven and the resumption of his program for israel that will ultimately result in christ's return to earth if you're a follower of jesus That memorial blast, the sounding of the trumpet, will signal a dramatic end to your life here on earth and the beginning of a new life with Jesus in heaven. It will also begin a time of trouble and difficulty here on earth, but a time when God will also draw the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back to him in a new and dramatic way, ultimately fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah and I'll pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They'll look on me, the one they've pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The application for you, my friend, depends on your relationship to Jesus today. Have you placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If not, then why not make the most significant decision of life right now? Literally, this decision has eternal consequences, and you never know when that trumpet might sound.
0: You know, if you'd like to talk to someone right now, a volunteer who would happily pray with you, answer your questions, help you receive Jesus right now, His forgiveness, His life in you, talk to a friend at 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. Charlie, thank you for that great devotional. We're looking forward to another great program next time. For Charlie Dyer, our host, Dan Anderson, our producer, I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.